0: But I'd invite you to join me by turning in your copy of God's Word to Acts 21. Here at Trinity, if you happen to be visiting, we're uh, working our way through the book of Acts. Um, And this morning we find ourselves in chapter 21. Today we're going to read verses 17 through 40. I will readily admit that some texts... Of Scripture are more difficult to preach than others. And I consider this one of them. It's uh I I can I can think of other standalone sermons I might do on a a big baptism Sunday like this, but in God's providence, uh, this is the text we're wrestling with this morning. I mean, as you go through. The book of the Bible, you, just, you see it coming and you just, you can't go anywhere. Now, why do I consider this a hard text? Because I'm reminded that the best of men are still men at best. You heard that? The best of men are still men at best, meaning that even the best people you know Maybe someone you love and look up to is still a fallible human who will at times make mistakes and is imperfect and might even act foolishly. When you might hear me say that and respond, well, duh, John, everyone knows that. We all make mistakes. True But what if the person I have in mind isn't your spouse or your child or your neighbor or your pastor? What if the person or persons I'm talking about are the elders of the Jerusalem church? Or James the just? James the brother of Jesus? What if it's the Apostle Paul? I've discovered why this text has been so hard for me. Paul is very honest about the presence of sin in his life. He's very honest about it. He says in Romans 7, that famous line, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He'll say something else near the end of his life in a letter to Timothy where he says, I am the foremost of sinners. I'm the worst sinner I know. But I guess I didn't believe Paul. Maybe I'm the only one. It's like I have this innate subconscious notion that, yeah, Paul was a terrible person prior to his conversion... But after the Damascus Road incident, he he never sinned again. He never made another mistake. And I just I've discovered I've put Paul up on this moral pedestal. And then I look at this text and I see Paul doing things. And I, I think, what are you doing? Stop. Why would why would you do that? Now it's interesting. I never have this problem with Peter because. I'm well aware. I think we're all well aware. Peter is a mess. But it it seems different with Paul. And and it's the same with James. You have a man so pious, so holy. A man who apparently spent so much time on his knees in prayer. It was said his knees looked like they belonged to a camel. And I, I read this and I see... What James asks of Paul in it, it bothers me. But you know, I'm reminded of something very important. And that's throughout all of church history, there has only been one perfect person. There has only been one person who never made a mistake. I'm always looking for a strong man. I'm looking for a hero, for someone I can hide behind and say, that's my guy, that's my leader. I'd follow him to the gates of hell. But I'm reminded that there is only one strong man. There is only one hero. One person who will never let me down, who I can trust unconditionally in every respect. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the Apostle Paul, it's not James, it's not John Calvin, it's not Ligon Duncan. The Lord Jesus is the only one who will never make a misstep, a mistake, a blunder or sin. I'm reminded that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. He is our hero. He is our strong man. But before you start yelling away with him and you drag me outside into the parking lot, let's pray and read today's text. Father, we remember that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction, and for training in righteousness. That we may be filled and equipped for the work you would have for us. Father, speak through your word to your people, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Read our text, Acts 21, beginning in verse 17. When we'd come to Jerusalem, the brothers gladly what received us gladly. They have been told about you, and that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you also, that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered them to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune may I say something to you and he said do you know greek are you not the egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness paul replied i am a jew from tarsus of cilicia a citizen of no obscure city i beg you permit me to speak to the people and when he had given him permission paul standing on the steps motioned with his hand to the people and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. The grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. If you haven't been following along with our study, the Apostle Paul has finished his third and final missionary journey. He's been to Philippi and Corinth and Thessalonica and Athens and Berea and Ephesus. He's already been to all those places he's not going to go back. Because from this passage onward, to the close of the book, Paul will be held in Roman custody as a prisoner. Now this shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. It wasn't a surprise to Paul. He knew what would happen. Everyone he met on his way to Jerusalem knew what would happen. And yet Paul was... Constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I do not think his going to Jerusalem was the mistake. I don't think that was the issue. This just begins a new chapter of his ministry. He's about to have the opportunity to share the gospel with folks he never would have met otherwise. He's going to be carried all the way to Rome, and some of his greatest work will happen as a Roman prisoner. Reminds me of John Bunyan, the uneducated English Baptist, the tinkerer's son who wouldn't stop preaching. And so they locked him up. And how did John Bunyan spend his time behind bars? He wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, one of the best-selling books in history. There's more work for Paul to do. We're just going to see a change of scenery and change of company. But first, we need to see what leads up to his arrest by the Romans. Paul arrives in Jerusalem with a group of Gentile brothers These are believers from the churches Paul helped plant. You can find their names at the beginning of Acts chapter 20. And these Gentile brothers who have come to faith in Christ come representing their home churches to the Jerusalem church. And they're bringing a financial gift for the Jewish Christians there in Jerusalem. Remember last week, we saw a prophet named Agabus. Well, we'd seen Agabus before in Acts 11, where he prophesies a famine that would greatly affect Jerusalem. The church would struggle and have food shortages. And so for the last three years, Paul has been collecting cash from all these Gentile churches, and the plan was to bring that money to Jerusalem, present it to the church, that it might provide a much needed resource if brothers and sisters in Christ are going hungry. It's just a wonderful example of the body of Christ caring for one another. But what happens? Verse 17, Luke records that upon reaching Jerusalem, the brothers received them gladly. And the following day, Paul and company went in to meet with James and the elders. And again, this is James the just. James the brother of Jesus, the leader of the Jerusalem church. Paul is meeting with him and the elders of Jerusalem. Luke tells us that Paul greeted them and then went on to tell about all the things God had done among the Gentiles through Paul's ministry. And then Luke says something that vexes me. In verse 20. When they heard it, they glorified God. John, why does that vex you? I I don't know what to do with this because it sounds great. It sounds encouraging. It sounds like something you would expect. A missionary visits a local church and tells of what God is doing, and they glorify God, and it sounds very encouraging. But I've got reservations because of what comes next. We're told they listened to Paul, they glorified God, and then they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? You see what they're saying? Paul. Thousands of Jews, Jerusalem locals, have come to Christ. They've come into the church. But they love their law. And they love their temple and they love the ceremony and the ritual and the Passover and the circumcision. They love all the Jewish customs and traditions. They're crazy about them. And they've heard that you feel the opposite way. They've heard that you're antinomian, you're anti law. And when they hear that you're in town, they're going to be quite concerned. So what are we going to do about this? I mean, you see why verse 20 is vexing to me? Like they heard about Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. It says, Luke says that they glorified God, but what follows makes it seem as if they're really saying, yeah, Paul, that's great, but let's, Get to the real agenda, which would be you and the rumors of your anti-Semitic teaching. Now, notice there is no mention of the financial contribution to these Gentile churches. Luke doesn't mention it. James doesn't mention it. The elders don't mention it. It's probably sitting on a bag, or in a bag, on a table right in front of them. No one says anything about it. No, no one... Says thank you. Instead, what do we hear? Rumors, gossip, lies. Paul hasn't forbidden a Jew, he hasn't told a Jew that he is forbidden to have his child circumcised. He's simply said that circumcision isn't required for salvation. That's the whole issue in the letter to the Galatians. Salvation does not equal faith plus. Circumcision. Salvation is by faith in Christ alone. There'd been a campaign of whispering against Paul. You ever seen that in a church? Campaign of whispering against someone. That Paul, he's he's pro Gentile. He's against our way of life. You know, these, these rumors are circulating throughout the church. They're, the people have become very suspicious of him. I can imagine one of these Jerusalem Christians meeting Paul and maybe, have you ever met someone and you just assume like from maybe who they are or what they posted on Facebook around election time, you're just like, they probably don't like me. Have you ever felt that way? I can just imagine one of these ethnic Jewish Christians meeting Paul and thinking, well, if he, if he knew I was conservative and traditional and I'm holding to the old school ways and values, he probably wouldn't like me because he just wants to tear down everything I stand for. You know, you'll often hear people lamenting the state of the church today. And they'll say, oh, if only we could get back to the early church. If only we could get back to the first century church, first century Christianity, then we'd be on the right track. Then the church would be operating as it should be. This is first century Christianity. And it sounds disturbingly familiar. So James and the elders look at Paul and they say, we've got a lot of folks here who are zealous for the law of Moses. It won't be long before the whole town knows you're here. What are we going to do about this? I imagine Paul saying, all right, what do we do about this? And they respond, I'm so glad you asked. Verse 23, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expenses. So that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you. But that you yourself also live in observance of the law. Again, let's understand. Make sure we understand what's being said. Paul, we're going to give you the opportunity to prove to the church that you also live in observance to the law of Moses. There are four men who have taken a vow. It's probably the Nazarite vow found in Numbers 6. They've got about a week left before they are ritually clean. Why don't you join them in the temple? Finish this thing out with them? Why don't you prove to everyone there's no problem here? And you could do that by paying for all their expenses. You know, the, the sacrifices that they will need for this purification, the, the lamb, the ram, the grain offerings, all those things. Why don't you cover that? I'm sure if you did, the locals would see this has just been a, an unfortunate misunderstanding. Does this seem suspicious to anyone else? Maybe this is just my kooky conspiracy theory brain. It's almost as if they've planned this out. Paul is giving a report on church planting and they respond by saying, hey, people have a problem with you and we've got a way you can prove yourself. And the Apostle Paul finds himself in a lose-lose situation. If he says no and declines their plan, then all those of Jewish ethnicity, the locals in Jerusalem, will have all their suspicions confirmed. See? We told you he hates our law. We told you he despises our heritage. No, will want nothing to do with him. Or he can agree. He can do what James and the elders are recommending. He'd done something similar at, at Corinth. We're told he shaved his head for a vow for the sake of some Jews in Corinth, but This feels different. If Paul agrees, I think the most charitable way you can read this is that he's bending over backwards as far as possible for the sake of church unity. But this has been a hard text for me because I read it and I think his acquiescence is compromise. The man who wrote Galatians is compromising. Why would that be? Well, if he agrees, this would require him going back into the temple and offering a blood sacrifice which would be sprinkled on the altar so that the one offering it would be made clean. And yet he'll later write to the Colossians and say that in Christ Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and in him you have been made complete. What are you doing going back to offer sacrifices in the temple? Uh, Additionally, if if Paul says yes and agrees, it would mean that he's leaving the one who brung him. It's a good southern colloquialism. Leaving the one who brung you. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. If Paul does this, it means he's going to go to a place where his Jewish brothers in Christ who have followed him over 400 miles of sea travel. They won't be able to follow him anymore. If they go into the court of Israel, this section of the temple reserved exclusively for the Jews. If they cross that line, they will be killed on the spot. There are signs everywhere. Warning that if you are a Gentile, do not cross this line. And any Jew who brings a Gentile across this line will also be executed. This is going to require Paul to go to a place where these brothers can't go. He's going to be cleansed. Cleansed from what? from being around Gentiles. This rite of purification is something that the Jews did when they'd been out of the country and around Gentiles. I mean, think of these dear brothers who had traveled all the way with him. Think what this would have communicated to them. Hey, we thought the wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles had fallen for those in Christ. And yet there's a physical barrier right in front of them saying one step further and you will be killed. How could the same man who wrote the letter to the Galatians go along with this? You know, I I know he talks about being all things to all people in 1 Corinthians 9, but this seems too much. It's a lose-lose situation. And Paul chooses the latter. He chooses to go ahead with this plan. I imagine it was one of the hardest decisions he had to make. And I do think it was a massive mistake. I read James Montgomery Boyce this week. He was longtime minister of Tenth Presbyterian Church. He was founder of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. And he says this was hypocrisy. It was compromise. Paul was going to offer a sacrifice in front of the very priests who had killed and crucified Jesus? It is a turning of his back on the sufficiency of Christ. See why I started the way I did. There's only one perfect hero in all of church history, and it is the Lord Jesus. Now, why did Paul do it? He did so because he loved his Jewish brothers. Remember what he says about him in Romans 9? I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. He's been talking about the fact that at the end of Romans 8, that there is nothing in creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But then he goes on to say, But I would be cut off for them. If they could be brought near, I would be cast out. If they could be brought into the kingdom, I'd go to hell for them. Then in Romans 10, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for the Jews, is that they may be saved. Paul loved these people. These ethnically Jewish brothers, and that's what's driving him. Do you love the church like that? There are a lot of folks who will claim to love Christ, but they will despise his bride. The Lord Jesus did not bring you to life by his spirit and open your eyes to the beauty of the gospel so that you just love him and walk alone with him. He's called us to love one another and serve one another just as he loved us and came to be a servant and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now we need to ask, does it work? This ill-founded plan, does it work? This scheme to reassure Paul's skeptics? No, it doesn't work. We don't have time to go through all this, but Paul is in the temple with these four men. The whole process is almost over and he's recognized Some of the Jews from Ephesus recognize him. These are not ethnic Jews who have converted to Christianity. These are ethnic Jews who have rejected Christ. These are the same people who have been giving him trouble in every single town throughout his missionary journey. And they recognize him, and they set the whole place in an uproar. Men of Israel, they yell, this is the man who teaches teaches against the law of Moses. This is the man who brought a Gentile into the holy place and defiled it. Now, we know that's an utter falsehood because he, it's ironic, because he leaves his Gentile brothers as he goes to the temple. In a matter of seconds, the situation goes from zero to a hundred. They drag Paul out of the temple. A mob begins kicking and punching him. They're going to beat him to death. Later we're told in verse 35 that the soldiers actually have to carry him up the steps of the barracks because he'd been beaten so badly. They would have killed him then and there if not for the Roman soldiers intervening. But they do. They break it up and they come in and grab Paul and bring him to their barracks which was stationed right on the edge of the temple grounds. And if you're with us next week, we'll see Paul give a speech from those steps. But how do we end this week? How are we to end this text? The issue here is unity in the church, an issue that is just as present today as it was then. And so we ask did the financial gift work? this collection from the Gentile churches to produce unity within the body? Did it work? No. What about a policy of appeasement? You know, let's just give the people what they want. Did that produce unity? No. What about downplaying doctrine? Like, we don't want to fight over doctrine. We're going to put that aside. We just, we just want to be unified. We'll downplay the doctrine in order to win skeptics. Did that work? No. Well, how then are divisions in the church to be healed? How are divisions among ethnic groups within the church to be healed. They existed then, they exist today. Where do we find unity? Unity is only found by holding to and resting in what God has done for us. Not what we've done for Him. I read this Recently, in April's edition of Table Talk magazine, it, it, it's all about the church. I'm like, great, I'm going to look through that. I found this quote. Christian unity is rooted in what God has done for us. It's not rooted in what we've done for him. What has God done for us? He's so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He has borne the sin of many so that many are accounted righteous. Isn't that what is right before us? At this table... We find the root of Christian unity. As we come and by faith partake in the broken body and shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ for sinners, at this table we find our place of unity. And so, church, look to Him. Look to Him. Look to him and what he has done for you. Let's pray. Father God, we remember the prayer that your son offered up in John 17, the high priestly prayer where he prays for us. What a wonderful thing to remember the Lord Jesus praying for His people and He's praying for unity. Praying that we would be one as as we are one with Him and as He is one with you. Father, we are reminded of that unity as we come to this table. We thank You for the grace that is ours in Christ and ask that we would look to Him. That, That the divisions and hurts of the church would be healed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.